Welcome back to Victor E. History Podcast from the History Department at Fort Hay State University, home of Victor E. Tiger. Here at Victor E. History, Dr. Manami Guha and Holly Marquess highlight student, faculty, and alumni research. I'm Holly Marquess, and today I'm joined by graduate student Allison Helgett, who is here to talk about her master's thesis. You want to play rough? The Italian Mafia and Butch Lesbian Partnership in Greenwich Village, 1945 to 1968. Allison, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk about some of the stuff I've been working on over the past few months. I'm excited to talk to you about your research, first because it's fascinating and you did an amazing job, but also because this is right up my alley. Before we get into the topic, though, can you tell us about yourself and your time here at FHSU? Yeah, so I'm currently a second year graduate student in the history department, and I'm hopefully graduating in May. And I actually got my undergraduate degree here at FHSU in uh, 2020. Yeah, so you graduated in three years, had an undergraduate publication. You have another publication coming out this summer. So I am very much looking forward to discussing this work, especially since this thesis actually got its start because of a podcast. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, so after a recommendation from yourself, I listened to a about a 12-episode podcast series called Mob Queens, where two Hollywood film producers go on this sort of journey to uncover the life of Anna Genovese, who is um, the wife of the famous mafia leader Vito Genovese from the the Genovese crime family. And they actually refer to her as the godmother, which I think is very fitting for this strong, independent woman who infiltrated the male-dominated world. As the podcasters are doing through their research, they come across some rather interesting things about Anna's first marriage, her job helping run the gay bars, and even her sexuality. Yeah, it's a fascinating podcast. So everyone who hasn't listened to it should absolutely listen to it. I remember mentioning it to you. You said you were going to listen to it on a road trip. And then I just couldn't wait for you to get to some of the episodes, particularly about Anna and her sexuality. Yeah, so Anna was very, very secretive about her life, and these two researchers initially had very little evidence to go off mm-hmm. of except for birth, marriage, and death records, which proved to be a pain to access through the New York City Records Department. But they did manage to speak with a few different individuals with connections to the Italian Mafia, including Mia, who is Anna's granddaughter. Um, since the team had a lot of respect for Anna, they chose not to question Mia about her grandmother's sexuality. However, Ironically, Mia freely discloses that she found out later in her life that Anna had romantic affairs with women, confirming a suspicion lost well in history. Absolutely. Um, As much as they are telling Anna's story, they're also telling the story of the Italian mafia's relationship with homosexuals during the mid-20th century, which is something that hasn't really been tapped into yet. So let's actually start with a bit of an introduction to the mob in New York in, in 45. What does the Italian mob look like in New York during this time period? So by this time, peak immigration years were over for Italians and World War II had ended. So the Italian mafia was finally settling into their niche. Since the U.S. government had and the general public supported anti-immigrant policies throughout the early 1900s, Italian men kind of resorted to traditional means of making a living in kind of this restrictive environment. So that is essentially how the Italian mafia came to be in the U.S. It was run by five families, the Gambinos, the Genovese, Luigi's, the Colombo, and Bonanno. And although they were all intertwined in these various businesses like gambling and drugs, the Genovese's, for the most part, handled the gay side of entertainment. 
when prohibition was repealed in 33 with the 21st Amendment, states get the right to control or regulate alcohol. So in New York, the state liquor authority has quite a lot of power. How do they come into this relationship between the mob and the queer communities in New York? So the state liquor authority, which I kind of refer to as SLA, essentially made its own rules and had the New York City Police Department to act as its personal enforcer. The SLA created their laws with super vague language, which allowed them to legally target homosexuals on the grounds of disorderly conduct. They insinuated that homosexuality naturally constitute immoral and unlawful behaviors and actions. So a lot of business owners started denying entry or refusing bar service to homosexuals out of fear of fines, suspensions, or even closures. So now the Italian mafia saw this opportunity to be had here where they could make a, a sizable profit from their deprived individuals by creating safe spaces for them to congregate. But in order to do this, the mob had to become essentially buddies with SLA and the NYPD. So they paid them off in exchange for them turning a blind eye to this disorderly conduct happening inside. That wasn't at all disorderly in the first place. Uh, What was life like in Greenwich Village in the post-war period? So Greenwich Village had long been known as this bohemian enclave where socially progressive ideas like socialism, feminism, Freudianism, and LGBTQ plus rights had flourished at least as much as they could before, you know, civil rights and the sexual revolution of the 60s. So during this post-war period, the neighborhood was filled with immigrants, homosexuals, and other marginalized groups, which created a diverse space where everyone wanted to attain the American dream, essentially, or at least normalcy, but U.S. society barred them from doing so. So when you think about the mob in New York at this time, it seems at first like they would be in opposition to the queer community. But your thesis actually looks at the partnership between the mob and butch lesbians. So can you set this partnership up for us? Yeah, so this unlikely partnership surfaced for a variety of reasons, aside from the two being pushed into the same cultural space of Greenwich Village. Unlike gay men who threatened the principles of traditional Italian masculinity, these butches through their displays of female masculinity, actually matched and even reinforced some of the same heteronormative ways of living as a man. In addition, these women resembled the Italian mother, the mamismo, who conducted herself rather staunchly and abrasively when raising these Italian men. So since this typical Italian man possessed an intimate relationship with his mother, when he migrated to the foreign country of the U.S., the man could find comfort within this familiar figure. And lastly, these two marginalized groups both shared the same aspirations of attaining the American dream, which was essentially fueled by a mutual business-like mindset to project the partnership into this highly profitable sector of the economy. Tell me about Buddy or Bubbles Kent. Yeah, so Buddy, a.k.a. Malvina Schwartz, a.k.a. Bubbles Kent, was a drag king who worked at the 181 Club, one of the mafia's most famous gay bars. Originally, she was from a poor Jewish family, but when she started working in these clubs, she earned more than a livable wage on top of learning, earning large tips and dancing as a chorus boy on stage some nights and waitering on others. After a good Saturday or Sunday night, she could go home with around $100 in just extra cash, which is equivalent to a little over $2,000 in today's money. Yeah, that's pretty good for one night of work. Yes. Your thesis talks about several specific gay bars. What was 181 Club like for the owners, the patrons, and the employees? 
So at the intersection of 2nd Avenue and 12th Street, the Yiddish Arts Theater appeared to be this professional venue for the performing arts, or so it seemed. Once inside, people would descend the stairs to this hidden kind of underground cabaret club with this massive stage surrounded by dozens of tables and a bar that lined the entire back wall. While the employees, whether male or female, entertainers or busboys, would mingle throughout the crowd, making small talk and racking up tips from patrons, the owners, members of the Italian mafia, would sit at reserved tables in the back of the room to watch this sort of mayhem of an entertainment unfold. Oftentimes, officers from the NYPD would be seen joining the mob for a few smokes or drinks. However, the patrons were so captivated by the glamour on stage, all other proceedings seemed to happen inconspicuously. Arguably, the most detailed firsthand account historians have about working as a drag king at the 181 Club comes from a woman who went by the name Buddy Kent, a.k.a. who you asked about. After starting her career at a place called Ernie's, Buddy auditioned for the 181 Club, and she was absolutely ecstatic when she got hired because the Mafia's club had a reputation for only hiring the most attractive and talented entertainers in show business, and she saw it as an opportunity to push her career to the next level. So after Buddy stopped working at the 181 Club, what does Buddy then do for work? So after a good run there, she joined a number of other nightclubs and traveling burlesque shows until eventually she saved up enough money to purchase her own establishment with a couple of other partners called the Page Three. It was a successful bar for many years, but the rise of television and disco would inevitably put it out of business. In all her life, though, the only regret she ever has mentioned was not attending college. Hmm. However, she could not help but act very grateful for the mafia support during her younger years and never really commented more on it. There's this oral history testimony that you mentioned from Buddy Kent, which was done by the founder of the Lesbian History Archives. Um, what was that like interacting with this oral history? Yeah, so I actually did not get a chance to listen to it. The co-founder, Joan Nessel, handed it down to various historians. And now it's a CD copy of the tapes uh, actually rests with Hugh Ryan in his personal collection. And he only has a transcript available on his website. So for years, there have been disputes with the LAJ if more tape recordings of Buddy exist because in this specific interview that Hugh Ryan has, she mentions discussing things in earlier conversations with Joan. However, it has not been determined if such interviews actually occurred or if it's a mistake on Buddy or the LHA's part. So Joan Nessel, who conducted the interview with Kent and co-founded the Lesbian History Archives, has some commentary as a part of the debrief of that interview. What does she say about the role of Kent's life in the context of butch lesbians and the mob? As with a lot of her research on butch lesbians involved with the entire mafia and lesbians just in general, she said she always struggled to convey the realness of these women's lives to the general public because, unfortunately, people always seem to think that when they dressed up as drag kings, that they were all about the gimmick and acting eccentric. However, these were average working women who just engaged in a different sort of lifestyle and were not afraid to display their queerness. Can you tell me about some of the other individuals from your thesis that also worked at the 181, like Gail Williams and Lee Waters? Yeah, so... Now, all of these women I'm about to mention made a great deal of money at the 181 Club, but arguably the interesting part of their stories comes from what they chose to buy into with their money they earned at the 181 Club after they left. So Gail Crumpton, whose stage name was Gail Williams, was a petite woman who enjoyed the Mafia Bars because they were classy venues. Using her commissions, 
she and her lesbian lover actually bought an antique furniture store, ran it for years, then used the profits to retire to Florida where they could take on a different extravagant lifestyle. Then there was Blackie Savage, who shared the first part of her stage name with other dark-skinned performers at the time, but was rather a stoic sort of individual. Some people claim that working for the mafia turned her this way as she took on a more impersonal and methodical approach to life. She also used her earnings to purchase a business and it was actually an unemployment agency, which kind of matched her alleged personality. And then lastly, there was Leigh Walters from Hell's Kitchen neighborhood of Manhattan. She came from an Irish family who had a severe drinking problem, which she eventually took after. Mm -hmm. Unlike the other two, though, Lay purchased a large-scale operation, which was a marina, with her partner Kareen in Oyster Bay. However, when Kareen got fed up with Lay's alcoholism, she tried to steal the company out from under her. Um, she, but from her time in the mafia, though, Lay had established good connections. And all she had to do was make one phone call, and a man named Big George confronted Kareen <laughs> on the streets and Lay and Crane did not seem to have any more problems after that interaction. Sounds like Big George said everybody's straight. <laughs> so uh, Anna, who's the subject of Mob Queens, ran the 181 Club and eventually the 82 Club. What's her role in all of this? Yeah, so although Anna was not technically titled as the general manager, she acted pretty much as such. Right. She handled everything and anything from backstage to behind the bar. She was essentially a jack-of-all-trades within the entertainment business and being a woman, she was able to better connect with drag kings and the fairies, which was what they called gay men at the time, too. Now, do not think that she was not intimidating at all. A, a lot of people still feared her. Yeah, she sounded terrifying. Yes, very much so, um, with all of her backup entourage. However, Anna was more involved in not only the financial but personal side of operations because she became the sort of motherly figure to a lot of entertainers. No doubt, though, her sexuality helped her relate to her queer workers even more. Yeah, she's absolutely part of this community. Can you speak just briefly about her sexuality and how she relates to her employees? Yeah, so as I mentioned about the Mob Queens podcast, it was apparently no secret at the time that Anna was, in fact, romantically interested in and involved with women. According to the various testimonies I came across and from her grandmother or granddaughter and former club workers, she had relationships with at least two individuals, uh, a cashier at one of her clubs named Gwen Saunders and a woman named Jackie, who Anna kept in contact with until her death, as Mia stated. Since she was constantly berated about her sexuality, though, especially by the media when she testified against her husband Vito in open court, she understood the struggles that her queer employees endured, which created this sort of mutual respect in the midst of this mafia chaos. For example, Terry, who appears in P.S. Burn This Letter, Please, speaks about her experiences and the utmost respect she has for Anna. While Terry was working at the 181 Club as a drag queen, she realized that she was living a lie and consulted Anna about her desire to transition to a female. Anna sent Terry to her own personal doctor and paid for all of Terry's medical expenses so she could finally live the life she had always wanted, something that she would not have been able to afford without Anna's help. Arguably, Anna was happy to give someone the chance to live freely, which was something her marriage to Vito and her involvement in the mafia never fully allowed. How did the mafia interact with gay men in Greenwich Village in comparison to gay women? Completely different. The mafia had no interest in gay men. Oftentimes, they would brutally attack the fairies if they crossed any boundaries, physical or personal. On the other side, 
bunch of lesbians because with the scope of my research, I can't attest to the experiences of the femme lesbians at the time were treated with the utmost respect and would receive protection as one means of compensation, essentially. Although their sexuality definitely played a role into the mafia's dislike, I would say that the biggest problem that the mafia had with gay men was their flamboyancy. Because in my research, I did not find any instances where a gay man who did not provoke attention was beaten up. It all seemed to be rooted in the contrasting displays of masculinity. In chapter four, you discuss the documentary, P.S. Burn This Letter, Please, which you mentioned. And it's also something everyone needs to see. Tell me a little about this documentary and the drag queens it features. Oh, absolutely. Everyone should take a chance to watch this film. I promise you will not be bored. My students loved it. Yes. (laughs) Basically, the documentary, which was coincidentally produced by the two Mob Queen podcasters, used a box of letters written to a famous radio man from the 50s and 60s who had befriended a number of drag queens from New York City. It features several drag queens who are still alive and reflects on the lives of those who have passed on. Now, when you watch this, I would say Claude specifically would surprise you the most just because he does not have the typical look of someone you would expect to be a female impersonator. With that being said, you also meet Lenny and Robbie who were in the U.S. Navy and entertained as soldiers on boats before being dishonorably discharged and finding their way to the New York scene. And of course, there is Henry Adrian Arango, who has become a sort of icon in the drag community in recent years as an over-the-top activist for LGBTQ plus rights. And there are so many more with such unique and sometimes sad backstories, which make the audience really think of these men as brave transcenders, trendsetters in an era where everyone was out to bring them down. One of the things that my students liked best about this documentary is the use of the vernacular language of the drag queens. Um, So just to give us an example, what was mopping and how does this come into play with these queens? Yes. So mopping is another word for stealing. It was like a code word. Since gay men were often denied jobs because of their sexuality or received little compensation for the ones they did secure, they would unfortunately have to steal to live. Now, most of the times mopping refers to mainly clothes, jewelry, wigs, or other essentials to the drag queen's wardrobe. Although not everyone mopped, a lot of individuals despised mopping as it gave homosexuals a a terrible rap. There was almost an understanding that you did not rat out those who committed such criminal acts, though. Otherwise, you were not any better than the other people on the, the streets trying to get to the drag, trying to get the drag queens arrested, essentially. In a way, it became a large-scale art of robbery. And this sort of activity gets the attention of NYPD, who does an investigation at Anna's 82 Club. What happens there? So there was a big case where a couple of drag queens stole around 72 very expensive and foreign wigs from the Metropolitan Opera House. But there was a fellow drag queen who had a side job working in the costume closet at the Metropolitan Opera who suspected who the two culprits were. Now, in the documentary, this person never explicitly states that he notified the authorities, but one can presume as the next night, the NYPD and the FBI raided the 82 Club, drawing a lot of attention to what was supposed to be a subtle mafia-run establishment. By this time, the wigs had been sold throughout the drag community for fairly cheap, just so the two robbers could make some money off of them. Despite not knowing that their hair pieces were stolen, the cops arrested everyone who had purchased a wig. And very quickly, the names of the sellers were given up and these two individuals spent some time in Rikers Island Jail. 
Um, I'm excluding the names because I'm highly encouraging listeners to watch the documentary as there is a sort of kicker at the end of the story. Yeah, you don't want to miss that. You do argue in your thesis that in the clubs, um, the Italian mafia hired drag queens and gay men, and the mob sees them as a cheap way to expand their empire. Can you talk a little bit about this uh, aspect of the relationship? Obviously, as I have kind of stated, the relationship between the Italian mafia and gay men was extremely different than that of the butch lesbians. Since the majority of drag queens were looking for any sort of work, a plus being one where they could dress up and dance, the mafia hired drag queens and paid them illegally low wages. Also, since a lot of bar owners had decided to refuse service out of fear of SLA and the NYPD, the mafia had some of the only places where homosexuals could congregate. So they would sell them low shelf alcohol and weak drinks for extremely inflated prices. Unlike the butches, the mob saw gay men as totally wrapped up in these fleeting self-indulgences. Why did the mafia view gay men differently than they viewed lesbians, according to your research? I found that first off, gay men were often referred to as fairies, as I have stated earlier, which I think automatically gives a clear indication of how much respect and attention the mafia gave to them. Or how little respect. (laughs) Yeah, how little. Aside from their blatant disregard for privileged masculinity, the neediness made them easy to be manipulated in the sense that they were cheap, weak, according to masculine standards, and more concerned about expressing themselves in order to gain civil rights rather than concentrating on sticking to the standard grain to attain the American dream or normalcy. In addition, the fairies had no sense of loyalty, oftentimes throwing their friends under the bus for their own personal gain, as you know, the example I gave earlier. And since they were typically denied jobs due to their sexuality, or even if they did have one, it did not pay well, gay men resorted to stealing, and the Italian mafia did not see the this as a trustworthy trait, despite its own, you know, links to criminality. Right. So they have an interesting moral code there. Uh, did the difference in how they were perceived or treated by the mob lead to rifts within the queer mu- community moving into the gay rights era? Yes. So n- now the lesbians at the time were already aggravated with gay men as the homosexual movement they were putting forth did not really include their thoughts, ideas, or concerns of women. But with the mob's blatant distaste for gay men and the partnership that was forming with bridges, gay women could not help but adopt similar attitudes towards their queer counterparts. For example, Spivey was a butch lesbian who owned a gay bar, gay piano bar called Spivey's Roof in the 40s, and she only marketed her venue to respectable homosexuals, directly targeting fairies for their flamboyancy. She instructed her bouncers to deny entrance to anyone who flamboyantly displayed their sexuality. Also, just in general, with the butches being pampered by the mafia, while the gay men were basically being exploited and abused, there was no doubt tension, as the women did not actively try to save their queer brothers. This became a sort of disagreement between them. Tell me about Frank DiMatteo. Yeah, so Frank is a former Italian mafia member turned famous author, survivor, he calls himself. He wrote a biography about his time working for the criminal organization, and I used one of his interviews to highlight the various qualities that he learned made for a good partner or associate. He states that those who wanted to voluntarily join the mafia are the ones to watch out for the most because they have this raw passion and gumption to successfully propel themselves within the organization, which I think his description fits the butches of the Greenwich Village very, very well. 
What was the most challenging aspect of this research project? Honestly, I was able to find countless testimonies from gay men, but the butchers seemed to have maintained the Italian mafia's code of silence all the way until the graves. According to Lisa Davis, who transcribed the lesbian stories, she had to salvage letters and photographs from the garbage on multiple occasions because the women, for some reason, tried to throw their history away. Whether or not, though, they thought it was not important or if they were trying to preserve the partnership's secrecy, we may never know. What did you find that was interesting, but you ultimately just had to leave out? So originally, I tried to find instances where men from the Italian mafia actually used these gay bars as a means of exhibiting their own homosexuality. But due to the stigmatism, secrecy, and general loss of historical information over an extended period of time, I was unable to find any evidence really from that specific time frame of my thesis. However, I did find several modern cases where the Italian mafia made it very clear that homosexuality was not permitted with within the organization. For example, the most recent being in the early 2000s when John, who they call Johnny Boy Diamato, head of the DiCalavacante family in New Jersey, was killed by his associates for being gay, which brought disrespect upon the business in their eyes. If someone wanted to learn more about the mob or about gay bars in New York, which secondary sources would you say were the most helpful? I would first direct them to George Chauncey's Gay New York. And then after that, if they feel like they have understood the tense environment that a homosexual has lived in, I would recommend reading The Mafia and the Gays by Philip Crawford Jr., which is currently the only published piece that discusses the relationship between the two parties in detail. But it does have limited documentation regarding the Butch experience, which I think is where my thesis tries to fill a void in historical literature. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you'd like to bring up? So if you are interested in the story told on Mob Queens, but podcasts are not for you, as of November 2021, HBO is developing a limited series with Ruth Wilson, who starred in Jane Eyre, playing the role of Anna Genovese. So that is something people might want to look out for. I will absolutely be putting that on my list. Uh, What is up next for you, Allison? Yeah, so I'm going to take a crack at pursuing my doctorate in history at Texas Christian University this fall. Definitely a whirlwind of emotions I'm feeling, but mainly just excited to finally hone in on studying gender and sexuality more exclusively and maybe expanding certain areas of this topic. Absolutely. I'm excited to see what you'll do there. Thank you again for visiting with me and being willing to talk about this amazing amazing project with me today. Of course. I am happy that this project basically came full circle by ending in a podcast. Yes, absolutely. We will post a selected bibliography of sources for those who want to learn more about Allison's research topic at our website, victoryhistory.com. That's V-I-C-T-O-R-E history.com. You can subscribe by email to get notifications on episodes and can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Audible, Spotify, or at victoryhistory.com. If you're interested in pursuing a history degree or history education degree at FHSU, online or on campus, visit www.fhsu.edu history to learn more.